In the fall of 1993, I arrived at William Jewell College, go Cardinals, in Liberty, Missouri, and I just dated myself when I get that, ready to start my college years. I knew that I wanted my faith to play a role in who I was going to be in college, so I began to look at various Christian ministries on campus. I tried several, looked around, trying to find a place to fit, and finally I plugged into FCA. I'd probably been in FCA for a couple of months before one night, at the end of our meeting, somebody asked me to pray, and I froze. See, at that point in my life, I had no idea how to pray out loud. I didn't know what you were supposed to do. I didn't know what you were supposed to say, and I was clueless and frozen. See, it had always seemed to me that it was natural for other people, but for me, it was clueless. And maybe you have been there, perhaps you're still there. And if we lean into the scriptures, you actually find in Luke 11, the disciples in that same place. For in verse 1 of Luke 11, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught the disciples. Now see, they had watched him pray. They'd been around him while he'd prayed. They'd watched him go and leave and pray, and yet somehow in the midst of that, they still didn't know how to do it on their own, so they sought him out and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and in fact, he teaches six very important priorities of prayer. And as we lean into them, we'll find that there's no special formula to be found here, but there is great significance. Because when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and when God saw fit to include this in his holy word, we would be wise then to dig into these six priorities, which Danny Lukey has already called gold nuggets. That's what he calls my little image in the lower right, a gold nugget. There you go. You got a shout out already. So we're going to spend our next six weeks looking at these priorities, and then we'll actually move into the Advent season at the beginning of December. So this is where we'll spend our next several weeks. We're calling our series Pray Like This, because these are Jesus's words in the book of Matthew. These are the words Jesus uses to introduce what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And before we step into it, we probably ought to give some consideration to some other things Jesus said in Matthew 6. Because prior to leading them into the Lord's Prayer, he taught some prayer principles that we'll look at just briefly. So in Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, a note for Jesus took it for granted that though these guys may not know how to pray, he took it for granted that they did pray. And I suspect most of us fall into this camp. Whether you feel comfortable praying in public or praying on your own, I think most people pray. Statistics suggest atheists pray even when they get days that are bad enough. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Jesus sets up a huge contrast to begin. He now spells that out for you. He says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, we'll lean into this contrast as we move in, but be careful about thinking it's 
where you pray is important because that's not Jesus' primary thrust here. That they may be seen by others seems to be his concern. For truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The accolades of men. When you pray, Jesus says, be careful. He warns them about a hypocritical prayer that if we pray to be heard, if we pray so that we'll impress, Jesus calls that flat out hypocrisy. And I'll be frank with you and tell you, at various seasons in my life, I've been utterly guilty of it. See, we can buy into this ideology that if people hear us pray out loud, by the time I was a senior in college, I fell into this regularly. See, there'd be somebody in the crowd, particularly a female type, that you'd want to impress and go, oh, I should pray because I'll sound really impressive and she might think I'm awesome and I know God. Or you could be in a group of other people that you want to impress so you'd step out forward and say, oh, I want to pray. And Jesus pushes back on that, that it is hypocrisy to pray to impress and not to seek the Father, and he corrects that. In verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And again, Jesus takes for granted that you're praying and challenges us to see prayer as primarily seeking the Father. Again, pay attention. It's not the context that's important. It's your aim. It is your hope. For if you pray in a large group of people, and we will several times in this morning, it doesn't make Scott a hypocrite or me a hypocrite just because we pray in a large gathering. Now, if we do so in a way to impress you, we're guilty, right? But if we do so in a way that seeks corporately to gather us before the throne of God, to acknowledge who he is and to acknowledge that who we are and that we have needs, that is a right prayer. And that's what Jesus is putting before these disciples, that we pray for an audience of one. And that it's not about location, it's about the audience. We pray to seek him. It carries that on and adds to it in verse 7. And when you pray, again, third time, acknowledging that you're praying... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus says, don't just throw up Hail Mary prayers. Don't just say empty words. If you can't spell it, can't define it, don't pray it. It's not hard. And yet we could also fall into this, can't we? That we want to pray like other people and not like ourselves. I joked a couple weeks ago speaking on this topic at Crew that in different seasons in my life, if I heard other people pray, I thought, ooh, that was good. I should write that down. Man, that was a good line. I'm going to take that one. And we miss this idea that prayer is not a formula. It's not a secret language. There is no passcode. What prayer is effectively and essentially is us seeking God. You don't have to have the right words to do it. You just have to acknowledge who you are and who he is. And then, wait for it, be you. So if you want to pray and say, what up God? And that's how you greet your neighbors? That is perfectly fine according to the scriptures. 
If you want to say, O holy God who art in thine great place, and that's who you are and how you're wired, and you might greet your neighbors in a similar way, that's fine. Where we make the mistake is that we think we have to have special words in order to address God. We'll lean into that further as we move this morning. Pray like you. Why? Verse 8. Jesus says, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Why? Because your Father knows you. I have three kids, eight, seven, five, and three. It is fascinating if you're a parent, you get this. When my oldest comes up to me and says, hey, dad, you can tell by his expression what he wants. Hey, dad, um, I've been thinking about it, and I was just wondering if maybe, uh, and he dawdles. And I know he's after candy, because that's what he does when he's after candy. If he says, dad, will you just come help me in the garage? I'm trying to fix something. That's easy, that's simple, but when he pray or when he talks to me in a way that's like, um, I'm just kind of hoping and wondering, you can tell, and this is what our Father is heaven and is like. He knows what we need before we ask him. He knows you, and he knows when you are real, and he knows when you're faking it, and he knows the difference. And which is not to say that if you fake it, that's bad. Plenty of times have I prayed to God, Father, I'm just praying to you, and man, I'm just going through the motions because I feel like I'm supposed to. And that's an authentic and real prayer, and that's perfectly acceptable to God. Just own it. For our God knows who we are. He knows what we need before we ask him. Pray like you from where you're at. So before we continue in Matthew, let's pause for a second and note that as we step into what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, that this text shows up both in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11. And the context for both of these is different. And yet principally the words are the same. So I want to put before you a widely held academic thought that Jesus is actually teaching in two different occasions using the same prayer priorities. And so as we work through these six weeks, we're going to consider both contexts a couple of times. Because in Luke 11, it's the disciples that walk up to Jesus and ask him to teach them. Teach them how to pray. But Jesus says, when you pray, say this. As opposed to Matthew 6, 9, as a, where it is a conclusion to the principles that he's been teaching them. And he models out a prayer, living out the principles he put before them. And he says this. And he says, pray then like this. So let me read the text for us, and then we'll dig in a little bit. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, we'll read the whole prayer every week. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I have no idea how many times you've said that prayer in your life. I grew up in a Catholic family where all we did was pray repeated prayers. I learned this in so many different Bible versions because in the South, you say it before every football game in a locker room. Why? No clue. Somewhere in the back of my mind, it's in the King James. I also have it in the New King James. I also have it in the NAS and the NIV. So if I mumble my words, mistake them, it's because I'm somewhere in the middle of some other version. But any way you cut it, whether it's our Father in heaven or our Father who art in heaven, there are six priorities given in the prayer. There are six challenges, and here they are. Hallowed be his name. Your kingdom. Your will. Our daily bread. Forgive us and lead us. There are six priorities. Three that reflect absolutely who he is. Three that reflect who we are and what we need. And this morning we're going to look at the first phrase. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When Jesus says our Father in heaven, he's modeling a truth for us that will lead us to the priority of hallowing his name, but it starts with who he is. Because what Jesus does here is he puts two realities together for us, two realities that we can't miss. On one hand, he says, our Father, which is an incredibly personal statement, even more so when you appreciate that the translation more fully pushes to the idea of a daddy or a papa. However, your family likes to say it. It's a personal term. It's an Abba. It says we have an incredibly personal Father, we have a loving daddy who we are calling on. Why? Because we're his children. John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That if you have taken the step of faith, to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe that his death was sufficient for your sin, you've come unto salvation, the Bible would say you are a child of God. And that's more than just a metaphor. It's a reality that he is our father. Jesus pushes on that in the parable given after this text in Luke 11. When he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says, if you're a good dad, won't you be a good dad to your kids? Your kid asks you something, would you give him something that would harm him? Of course not. How much more will your heavenly father love you? 
What Jesus puts is a perspective of fathers. And let's be frank for just a second. There are a lot of people here who've got a lot of baggage based on an earthly father. It happens. And we could make the mistake of taking the imperfections, the failures of our own earthly dads and projecting it on God rather than seeing that our own heavenly father is a prototypical God. He's a prototypical father. That he is the real father and our father, regardless of how awesome they are. And I've said this a lot. I've got an incredible earthly father, but he falls way short of the earthly father. To take my dad who is great and painted on the earthly father or the heavenly father is also to make a mistake. We have to appreciate that our heavenly father is a prototypical father the best possible conceivable version of a dad you ever thought of, conceived of, or wanted. That's who our Heavenly Father is. And more. He's a daddy. On one hand. And on the other hand, in heaven, testifies to us of a completely transcendent and sovereign God. I want to remind you of the picture given in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, of our God. Isaiah 6 reads this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, throne room in heaven, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is a perspective of the throne room of God where God is called holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew, it's a superlative. It's holy, holy, or holiest. That God is the most holy thing that could ever exist. And if you study etymology, you would find that holiness is an attribute that starts and finishes with God. It is His alone. Why? Because holiness is primarily separateness. It means that he is entirely unique. He is entirely different. That its distinction is in its separation from everything else. And that thing is called holiness. Our God is holy, holy, holy. And if you read through the scriptures and you find these pictures you'd immediately find that people who walk into this situation fall flat on their faces. Why? Because stepping into the presence of God is awesome. And it's absolutely incredible and unreal and humbling. Now for just a second, let me just put this out here before you. When every 18 months somebody else writes a book about how they got to heaven and they saw grandpa and it was amazing... Please contrast that with Scripture. Because that is not the experience of anyone in heaven who's gotten there. Look at God's Word. 
When you show up in heaven, it's about him. It ain't about you. He is holy, holy, holy. The train of his robe filled the temple. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Our God is altogether his own thing. And he's entirely separated from everything else. So here's a tension that you got to live in, right? On one hand, we have a father who's intimate and personal and real. And on the other hand, we have a holy, holy, holy God whose presence we can't even stand before. And the challenge that we have as believers is we want to believe that there's a string between the two. And, and we got to figure out how personal he is versus how holy he is. And everyone kind of moves around on that spectrum. Either he's really personal and not really holy, or he's really holy and not really personal. And if you've believed that he's so holy but not personal, you've held him off. Because he's standing in judgment on you. And if you've believed he's so personal, you've pushed back on his holiness, then you've bought into this idea that everything you do is okay. Everything you do is fine. That he loves everybody and everyone can get away with everything. Why? Because he just loves you. And what we miss about the perspective of Scripture is he's not 37% this while 63% that. He's 100% both. He's entirely everything of both. He's an incredibly personal, loving father, 100%. He is a righteous, sovereign, transcendent God, absolutely 100%. So how do you talk to, acknowledge, or meet with a God who is on one hand personally knowable and on the other hand such an extreme contrast that he's transcendently separated you from you and everything else. And the answer is the gospel. See, the transcendent holy God sent his only son to leave the transcendent to cross over into the earthly, to dwell among us, to humble himself to death, even death on a cross, and in doing so brought us into a relationship with our daddy. Holy God, 100% holy, transcendent, holy, 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 sought us out and brought us near so that we could have an absolutely personal relationship with him. He's a thousand percent holy and a thousand percent personal. And if you don't like my math, it's fine. It'll be eternity. And it'll prove to us I was on the short end. Friends, when we pray to God, we pray to God through the completed work of Jesus Christ because of the Father, which is to say that when we pray to God, we pray through the gospel 
Let me give it to you like this in the words of the author of the book of Hebrews in verse 4, when he says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What this author puts before us is this picture of the throne room, right? If you want to write in your Bibles, Isaiah 6, you want to write Revelation 4, there are a couple other pictures. That's the throne room. And what the author says here is when you come to the throne room, come with confidence. You don't have to shake. You don't have to worry if you're welcome. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are called to draw near with confidence that you would receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. God the Father, the Holy Transcendent One, loves you like a daddy and wants to provide everything for you, wants you to come in warmly and know that you're wanted. Friends, knowing who he is prepares us to pray. And it puts us in the right frame of mind to pray. Because when we pray, we pray because of the gospel, and we pray through the gospel, so we can cry out with confidence, our Father in heaven, a personal and holy God. And this brings us to the first priority of prayer. Hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I don't know if you're like me, in this sense, probably are. The word hallow is not in my typical vocabulary. I don't hallow very often. What it means is that when we hallow his name, we're articulating that his name would be held high, that his name would be held holy, that we'd be acknowledging who he is. This year, I had the opportunity to attend the Global Leadership Summit at Bethel Church. They have about eight different speakers from a variety of backgrounds. I, hold, I heard Danielle Strickland speak. She's a senior officer of the Salvation Army, and she gave these two definitions. I'll tell you all that to give her credit for her words. She says this, true humility is agreeing with God about who you are. That's her version of humility. That you would agree with God about who you are. That you would look at the scriptures and get a sense of who you are. And that you and God would pray together and you'd agree about that. That you'd agree with God about who you are. And she took it a step further to say, And true dependence is about agreeing with God about who he is. And when you lean into those, you lean into the gospel. And when you lean into those, we hallow his name. We set his name apart. We agree on who we are, that we are different, that we are in need. As the author of Hebrews would point out, that we would receive mercy and find grace. Why? Because that's the thing we need most from our Heavenly Father. It, it sure isn't a new car. It sure isn't a new this or that, and it sure isn't my kids sleeping better at night 
which is often the thing I pray about most. Especially with my wife out of town. We need mercy. And we need grace. Because our Father is willing and able to give us that which we don't deserve. And willing to meet our needs and provide for us in ways that we'll never get as long as we look at Him and live dependently on Him. Friends, we are different and we are needy. And when we hollow His name, we agree on who we are, but we also agree on who He is. That He is the transcendent sovereign God who rules and reigns and provides the grace and mercy that we need. Provides our daily sustenance and gives breath for our lungs and gives us the patience that we need for other people and gives us the love that we need for other people and gives us the words we need to use for other people. See, when we hollow his name, we hold in balance that we're supposed to come boldly to his throne while recognizing the absolute holiness of his throne. When we hallow his name, we get that he is entirely different. And in our neediness, we're acceptable because of Jesus. We recognize fully both realities. That he is a righteous, holy God, and I'm a needy sinner who's fallen short. It acknowledges Both realities for us. And that changes how we pray. The more we lean into this, the more it'll change how we pray. When you stop and take into consideration who he is and who you are and how the Bible says he is and how the Bible says who you are, it changes how we pray. Because Ben, the broken, needy sinner, and those aren't just words, right? Can I, can I just tell you what my day looked like yesterday? Let me just confess to you a bunch of sin. I got f- so frustrated at my children yesterday because I just, I was so selfish and wanting it my way. And I couldn't get why my three and five-year-old didn't want to do it my way. And so I just took it out on him a couple of times. And I just found myself just broken. And what a punk I was. And you know, the tipping point of my afternoon yesterday was when my five-year-old came into the kitchen and said, Daddy, I'm sorry I haven't had a helpful attitude today. I know you need more from me right now. Can I just come and help you? You're like, why does my five-year-old get it? Why does she get it? See, we're, we're broken people, right? We think we've got it all together. We like to act like we've got it all together. But when we really acknowledge it, when we live out a little bit, we don't at all. We're all struggling with sin. I need about 110 amens. We're all struggling with sin. 
So we approach a God as a broken, struggling people, a God who's holy and transcendent, who can't even tolerate our sin at all. But because of the work of Jesus, we're invited into the throne room to be with God our Father, to worship Him, and to receive what we need from Him. As we close this morning, I want to close by reading a pic, John's picture of the throne room given in Revelation 4. And I want to do so pretty intentionally. Because if you take Hebrews 4 literally, and we should, when you pray to God, you have access to the throne room. And when you have access to the throne room, you ought to take some consideration to where you're going. Let me read this for you. This is John's picture of the throne room given to him in Revelation 4, and then we will pray in light of that. Let me read it to you, and please listen to the words. And after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me was like a trumpet, saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. John sees the throne room. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles of, and pearl peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you would call us to come into your throne room. So corporately, we come before you, Father, recognizing your transcendent 
sovereign holiness. That as you sit on your throne, Father, we are unworthy of what you've accomplished on our behalf by your Son. Father, even as you have creatures singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, we come before you, God, and we thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent your Son to leave heaven, to leave the transcendent, and to step into the earthly, to dwell among us, that we might know you. Because we don't deserve you. And yet you sought us out. And you've called us to come before you personally. And Father, as we stand before you, your word would tell us that we can now talk to you about anything we want, regardless of how simple or trite it might seem. Father, anything we can put before you because you're our daddy. So Father, I ask that as a group of us, that you would deepen our prayer lives, that you would allow us a greater understanding of who you are and who we are, that as we would come and pray to you, you would grant us an understanding of the gospel, that we can only pray to you because of what Jesus did at the cross. And so that as you give us and grant us a deeper understanding, that our prayer lives would increase to acknowledge who you are and to acknowledge who we are. Father, that we could live a life that is more fully dependent on you. That we'd stop depending on ourselves. Father, show us our inadequacies. Show us our mess-ups. Not that we would wallow in them, God, that's not your desire. But Father, that we might fully and more fully trust you, lean into you, and let you be you. That we could really live out the reality that your grace is enough, it's sufficient for all of our needs. Father, thank you that we could come before you and talk to you. Thank you that you have set us free from our sin. Father, make us a people who love you, and love your name, and love your glory. Follow, we hallow your name. Through the name of your Son, we can come to you and pray. Amen. Amen.